Today's podcast is sponsored by NetSuite, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. Over 28,000 businesses already use NetSuite. Head to netsuite.com gold for a special one-of-a-kind financing offer. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Avast. Avast's new all-in-one software, Avast One, helps you take control of your safety and privacy online through a range of business features. You can learn more about Avast One at Avast.com. Today, the Federal Reserve finally delivered the most highly anticipated and probably the most absolutely meaningless 25 basis point rate hike in its history. Now, at one point, there were some people who thought that maybe Powell would lift off with a 50 basis point hike, but Powell pretty much threw cold water on that during his semi-annual congressional testimony where he came out and said that he was prepared to raise rates by 50 basis points. Now, the decision to raise by just 25 wasn't unanimous. There was one lone holdout, Bullard, who wanted to go the full 50 basis points. But even 50 basis points would be too little too late to do anything to derail this juggernaut of inflation that has already been unleashed. And I think the reason that Powell even was able to move by 25 basis points is because the markets had pretty much given him the green light for that increase. In fact, the markets started a pretty big rally on Monday and rallied even more today. The Dow finished the day up by better than 500 points. You know, since the Fed's been talking about this rate hike for so long, the markets have had a long time to discount that rate hike into the stock market. Now, I don't think the market has discounted nearly enough the number of rate hikes that we're ultimately going to have and the impact that those hikes are going to have on both corporate earnings and the U.S. economy. But whatever the market assumes is going to be the result of rate hikes, that has been factored in somewhat into the market. And again, there is an old stock market saying you buy on the rumor and you sell on the fact. So to the extent that there's been a lot of selling on the rumor of a rate hike, sometimes you would expect a rally on the actual hike. Well, in this case, the rally started a couple of days before the hike. I think so many people that wanted to buy the fact didn't want to wait for the fact, and they started buying on Monday. And so we had this big three-day rally leading up to and including this 25 basis point rate hike. The Dow Jones is now up 3.4% so far this week, first three days. S&P 500 doing a little bit better, up 3.6. And that's because of the tech stocks, because the NASDAQ was up 4.9% on the week. The laggard being the Russell 2000, that index was only up 2.6%. But take a look at the Kathy Wood Arc Innovation ETF. I've been beaten up on that for months on this podcast. It was the winner on the week, up 8%. But in fact, all of that gain and then some happened today because the ARC ETF was up 10% on the day, meaning it was still down 2%. Even as the other indexes were rising on Monday and Tuesday, the ARC ETF continued to fall. 
but it rallied today. And you know, the tech stock rally started overnight. We had a huge rally in the Asian tech stocks. Some of the really beaten down Chinese tech names had huge gains overnight. And that probably boiled over into the US market and helped lift our tech stocks as well. But I don't think this rise is sustainable because I think a lot more rate hikes are potentially coming than the market really understands. And those hikes are gonna do a lot more damage to the economy than investors understand. But what they're not gonna make a dent in is inflation. And that's something that very few investors understand, including bond investors. I think the most significant reaction to the rate hike was the yield curve because the yield curve actually inverted temporarily as yields on five-year U.S. treasuries actually rose above yields on 10-year U.S. treasuries. Now, as I'm recording this podcast, it is flattened out and the yields are now identical. You get 2.18% on a five-year and 2.18% on a 10-year. Now, a two-year is not that far behind. You're getting 1.94% interest on a two-year. So not that much less than you'd get going three more years out on the curve. But the difference between the five and 10 is zero. And as I said earlier in the day, it was negative. And I might expect that to continue and the curve to invert. I don't know if we're going to invert it out to 30 years, but yields on 30-year treasuries actually dropped today as yields on 10-year treasuries rose. So that spread narrowed between the 10s and the 30s. The yield on a 30-year treasury, even though it hit a new high for the year today at 2 spot 541, it ended up settling the day at 2 spot 459, which was lower than the yield on the previous day. And so why is the bond market doing this? Why is the bond market inverting the curve between the five and the 10? And why is the spread narrowing between the 10-year and the 30-year? That's because the bond market is bracing for a recession, despite the fact that Powell is convinced that no recession is coming. And I'll go over that when I talk about his Q&A. But despite the fact that Powell is convinced that the Fed can vanquish inflation without vanquishing the recovery, that we're still going to have a strong economy despite the Fed's rate hikes, the bond market obviously isn't buying it because the bond market is starting to price in the next recession, even if the Fed denies that one is coming. Now, I agree that bond investors are correct. A recession is coming. But where bond investors are missing the mark is to believe that the arrival of recession means a departure of inflation, that somehow it's recession that is going to solve the inflation problem. I actually think it's the reverse. I think recession is going to exacerbate the inflation problem. That's why it's so difficult, the position that the Federal Reserve is in, because as the U.S. economy weakens, that's going to put more upward pressure on the budget deficits. The government is going to collect less in the way of taxes. It's going to be spending more in the stabilizers that kick in as the economy weakens. So the deficits are going to be getting bigger, which is going to be putting more pressure on the U.S. dollar to go down. And as the U.S. dollar really starts to fall, that's going to be putting more upward pressure on prices. 
But the price increases that we've seen so far are just the tip of an iceberg. They're not all because of the monetary policy post-COVID. I think a lot of what we've experienced thus far is the consequence of the inflation that was created before COVID. There is a lag. There is a long lag now between the inflation of the money supply and the effect that it has on consumer prices. We finally caught up to inflation in a big way. We're seeing the very beginning of the increase in prices. But if you look at how much money supply has grown over the past decade compared to how much prices have increased for goods and services, we have a long way to go in order to get to where we need to be based on all the inflation the Fed has unleashed. In fact, I was listening this morning on CNBC, Senator Elizabeth Warren was out there talking about inflation. And she was asked by the person interviewing her, well, why do we have inflation? Where does inflation come from? And the answer to that is obvious. Well, it comes from the Federal Reserve printing money so that the U.S. government can spend it. So it comes from Congress running deficits, which the Fed monetizes, right? That's where inflation comes from. But according to Elizabeth Warren, no, inflation has nothing to do with the U.S. Congress. She listed two causes of inflation. The first one, she said, was the pandemic. If it wasn't for the pesky pandemic, we wouldn't have had any inflation. And how did the pandemic cause inflation in her mind? Not because the government printed all this money to stimulate the economy during the pandemic, because we told everybody not to go to work, but then we printed up the money so they can keep on spending to buy stuff, even though they were no longer working to help produce stuff. No, no, that's not why. According to Elizabeth Warren, what happened is when people were holed up in their homes, they couldn't go out and consume services. So they went out and bought a bunch of stuff instead. And so we had an increase in demand for stuff and a decrease in demand for services. And that's why we have inflation because people stopped spending money on services and they just started spending money on stuff. Well, if that were the case, if people were spending less on services, well, then service prices would go down because demand went down for services to offset the increase in the price of goods. But that's not what happened. The price of services also went way up. It's not like goods prices are the only prices that are rising. I mean, maybe if that were the case, if goods prices were going way up, but service prices were going way down, maybe Elizabeth Warren would have a point. But of course, if service prices were going way down, we wouldn't have all this inflation because those declining service prices would average down those increase in good prices. And so the net effect would not be a big jump in inflation. The fact of the matter is Elizabeth Warren has no idea what she's talking about because service prices are going up. In many cases, service prices are going up more than goods prices. It depends on the service and it depends on the good, but all prices are going up because of inflation, not because of COVID. COVID didn't cause all the deficit spending. COVID didn't cause all the money printing. The U.S. Congress did and the Federal Reserve did. Now, the other factor that Elizabeth Warren attributed to the increase in inflation was corporate greed, that corporations are simply taking advantage of rising costs to tack on some extra money to pad their profits. So their costs go up 5% and they just take the opportunity to raise prices 10%. And so they're gouging and they're just taking advantage of the situation by making extra profits, which of course is not happening. Because first of all, if corporations could just gouge their customers 
with higher prices, why would they wait for inflation? Just start doing it sooner. I mean, they're so greedy. Just jack up your prices. The reason you can't is because of competition. Well, the competition is still there. You see, if there was no inflation and one company jacked up its prices, well, other companies might not do that. And so the company jacking up prices would start losing out on sales. And so they don't do it. But when your costs are going up across the board, well, now you can increase your prices because your competitors are going to be forced to increase their prices too. Otherwise, they're going to lose money. So it's the inflation that is enabling the price hikes. It's not that we don't have competition. We've always had competition. Of course, ironically, we would have even more competition if we had fewer regulations and lower taxes. You have a Democrat complaining that we don't have enough competition in the U.S. economy when the biggest threat to competition is taxes and regulations. That's why a lot of businesses go out of business. That's why a lot of businesses never go into business in the first place, because they can't overcome their hurdles that the government places in their way with taxes and regulation. So I agree, we should have more competition and we would if we had less government, except that Elizabeth Warren is the champion of more government. But the ultimate irony of what Elizabeth Warren is alleging is the fact that producer prices are increasing more than consumer prices, which proves the opposite of what Warren is alleging is true. Corporations are not tacking on extra to gouge their customers. They're actually taking bullets for their customers. They have not passed on the full increase in their costs to their customers because they were worried about losing some sales. They were willing to absorb some of these price hikes. And one of the reasons they were willing to do that is because they believed all the propaganda from the Fed. They believed that inflation was transitory. And so they figured, why put through these price hikes and ignore our customers and risk losing some for transitory inflation? We'll just bite the bullet. We'll lose a little money for a few months and we'll wait for the transition. We'll wait for our costs to come back down and we'll kind of maintain a lower price structure. That's what companies were doing. The opposite of what Elizabeth Warren is accusing them of doing. They just make up lies to try to explain away inflation. And of course, the lie that's going to be used most often going forward, in addition to the greedy corporations, which of course the Democrats are never going to give up on. And in fact, Elizabeth Warren, as I said, was already talking about a windfalls profit tax on oil companies, which again is the last thing you'd want to do if you want U.S. oil companies to produce more oil, you don't want to tax away their profits because it's their profits that can be invested in more production, in more exploration and development. If you take away the profits under the name of a windfall profit tax, well, then you take away all that investment. And so we have less domestic production, which means we're more reliant on international sources for our oil. But the new scapegoat is going to be Russia and the Ukraine. I mean, this is just going to provide all sorts of excuses for rising inflation because they're going to be able to point to oil prices or commodity prices going up and say, you see, that's because of the supply bottlenecks now that are being caused by Russia and Ukraine. They were being caused by COVID, but now we have a new external factor and it's beyond our control. That is not what's causing inflation. You can have certain prices go up without having general inflation because other prices go down to offset it. When you have all prices going up, 
It's because the money supply has increased to enable consumers to spend more money on everything. Because if that wasn't the case, if consumers were forced to spend more money on food and energy, well, they would by necessity have to spend less money on everything else. And the price of everything else would have to come down in order to clear the market. When that doesn't happen, when the price of everything goes up, it's because the Federal Reserve is creating inflation. And so getting back to the point I was making on the bond market, the bond market is getting this wrong. They are thinking that recession is going to cure inflation. It's not. When the U.S. economy moves into recession, the dollar is going to tank because despite what the Fed is saying, they are going to ease up on the rate hikes. It's not going to be penal to the metal like Powell is suggesting. Powell is going to be sensitive to what's happening in the economy, to what's happening in the labor market. And as we move into recession, the Fed is going to slow down. It's not going to call them off, at least not initially, but it will tap on the brakes on this path and the dollar is going to tank and that's going to put more upward pressure on commodity prices. And remember, it is supply and demand. And even if demand goes down because we're in recession, supply can go down more. If the dollar tanks, we can't afford to import as much stuff as we could when the dollar was higher. So if we have fewer goods coming into the country, then that reduces the supply of goods and prices go up. The CFOs that get it, get it. The CFOs that don't, don't. Let's talk about the CFO. The chief financial officer, today's CFO, is critical to the strategy and success of the business. And in growing companies, there are two kinds of CFOs. Ones who are struggling to keep up, spreadsheets everywhere, manual processors, errors, and lack of visibility into the numbers. It takes weeks to close the books. Then there's the other kind who are on top of their game. Automated reports, inventory, e-commerce, and HR flow into financial models seamlessly. Insights coming with a click of a button. With visibility and control of your financials, inventory, HR planning, and budgeting, NetSuite is everything you need to grow all in one place. That's why NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system used by over 28,000 growing businesses. Like I told you, the CFOs that get it, get it. The ones that don't, don't. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system to power your growth. With visibility and control of your finances, inventory, HR planning, budgeting, and more, NetSuite is everything you need to grow and it's all in one place. With NetSuite, you can automate your process and close your books in no time while staying well ahead of your competition. 93% of survey businesses increase their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Over 28,000 businesses already use NetSuite. For the new year, NetSuite has a new financing program for those ready to upgrade at netsuite.com gold. So head to netsuite.com gold now for this special one-of-a-kind financing offer on the number one financial system for growing businesses. NetSuite.com slash gold. We did get numbers today on inflation, including the producer price numbers, which went up by 0.8% in the month of February. That was a slightly smaller increase than the 1% that had been expected. But that's because we revised the prior month, which was originally reported as up 1%. That was revised to up 1.2%. So if you look at the two numbers, it was pretty much bang on expectations. And in fact, the year-over-year -year increase in producer prices came in at 10% versus 9.7% in January. But again, this proves my point and disproves 
Elizabeth Warren's allegation, if consumer prices are up 7.9% year over year, but producer prices are up 10% year over year, are businesses gouging their customers? No, it's the customers that are gouging the businesses. They're only paying the businesses 7.9% more, even though their costs went up by 10%. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. So everything she's saying is nonsense. Even if you take out food and energy, the so-called core PPI, that was up seven-tenths of 1%, which was one-tenth hotter than expected, although they revised down the previous months from up 0.8 to up 0.7. But the year-over-year increase notched up 8.4% year-over-year core in the PPI. But, you know, a much more accurate read, I think, on inflation are the import-export prices. We got those today as well. And import prices were up 1.4% on the month. That was a little bit below the 1.5% expected. And we did revise down the prior month, which was 2% in January. And that's now 1.9, but that's still a big jump. But year-over-year, import price is now up 10.9%. That is a big increase, much bigger than the 7.9% in the CPI. Why is that? Why are our import prices rising so much more than the CPI? Well, one of the reasons is those import prices are not manipulated the way the CPI is. They're just prices. They don't substitute. They don't hedonically adjust. They don't change the basket. It is what it is. And it's 10.9%. And by the way, that's the cost of the goods, not the cost of bringing them here, because the shipping costs, the freight costs, those have all gone up. So the real cost of imports is much higher than just 10.9% when you include how much it costs to bring these things over here. But the export prices, that's where you saw the big jump. The monthly increase in export prices in February was 3%. That is a huge number in one month. And that follows a 2.8% increase in January. You're talking about almost 6% increase in prices in two months. Now that 2.8% number was actually slightly lower than the original 2.9, but still that is a huge back-to-back monthly increase. So now year over year, export prices are up 16.6%. That is more than double the inflation rate of 7.9%. Why is that? Because think about it. If you're a company and you're producing stuff to export, you probably produce stuff that you don't export. You have companies that are producing products. Some of the products are sold domestically, and then some products are exported and sold internationally. So if the cost of making your exports is going up by 16.6%, Wouldn't the cost of making the same goods for domestic consumption be going up by 16.6%? Remember, the cost of shipping is not in here. This is just the cost of the stuff. 
And I think it is going up that much. This is a better read on inflation than the CPI because this is the real price of goods that are being produced in this country. Not the goods that are being produced outside this country, but the ones that are being produced here. And that's a better representation of the U.S. inflation because the cost of our imports, that might reflect the inflation in our trading partners. The fact that the dollar has actually gone up and it has, that helps offset some of the cost hikes that are happening abroad due to inflation outside the United States. But clearly, the prices of the stuff that we make here are rising a lot more than the prices of the stuff that is made in other countries and imported here. Now, I realize the composition of what we export and import is different. So it's not apples to apples, but it is a huge gap between the two prices, especially when you compare the 7.9% CPI to the 16.6% export prices. I think that we're a lot closer to 16.6 than 7.9. And again, I've been using 15% inflation as kind of a guideline, which is, I think, where we would be if we were still using the 1980s CPI to measure prices now in 2022. We'd be at around 15%. And lo and behold, that's about where you are on these export prices at 16.6%. But my point is that when the dollar really starts to fall, that's when you're going to see an even bigger increase in these import prices. And that is going to offset the reduction in demand that may come about from a weakening economy. In fact, if you look at some of the numbers that came out on the economy this week, look at the Empire State Manufacturing Index. We got that yesterday. They were looking for eight as the number, and that would have been an improvement on the 3.1 that we had in February. And instead, we got a minus 11.8. I mean, that blew away the low end of the range. The consensus was from minus two to plus 0.10. We got minus 11.8. Very weak economy. That is a March number. And by the way, the inflation numbers that we got were February numbers. So March is going to be much worse because March is going to include the big increase in prices that happened in March post Ukraine invasion, those price increases were not in the February numbers, but they will be in the March numbers. But look at the retail sales numbers, because again, this is proof of how rising prices impact sales, because retail sales were only up by 0.3% in February. Now, they were up a lot in January. It was a 4.9% increase, and that was an upward revision. But in February, they were only up 0.3% and X automobiles only up 0.2%. Now we know prices are going way up, especially prices for automobiles. So if the dollar volume of sales is only up 0.2 for cars, what does that mean? Well, we're selling a lot fewer cars because the price points are much higher because these numbers are not adjusted for inflation. So if retail sales are up 0.3, that just means that in aggregate, consumers spent 0.3% more dollars than they spent in the prior month. But that doesn't mean they actually bought more stuff. They could have bought less stuff because the prices of the things they're buying are going up. So when they go shopping, they end up spending more money. But when they get home, they have less stuff that they actually bought, 
with more money because prices went up. So retail sales don't tell you anything about how much is being sold. All they tell you is what is being paid for what is being sold and not how much has been bought. In fact, more anecdotal evidence of inflation keeps piling up. I was reading an article today about Congress and each member of Congress was given an increase in the allowance that they get each year to pay their staffers. And this year's increase in the allowance was an all-time record high, 21%. So apparently, congressmen need 21% more money to pay their staffers this year than they paid them last year. Now, either they're getting a massive raise or they're basically just keeping pace with inflation, which is it? Because if inflation is only 7.9% and they've got a 21% increase in their compensation, that is a huge pay increase for congressional staffers. Now, there's no way that they could be worth all that extra money. Of course, the irony of it is it's the government that's creating all this inflation, and now they're making the problem worse because these pay increases for the staffers, well, they're going to cause more inflation because the government's going to run bigger deficits in order to pay congressional staffers more money. Nobody's taxes are going up, so it's going to be paid for through inflation. And also, by the way, I'm working on building a studio to record my podcast, and I've been procrastinating it. I was going to do this about nine months ago, and then things came up, so I put the plans on hold, but we got some prices about nine months ago, and now I've actually started construction, and I'm buying the stuff that I got quoted nine months ago, and the whole project is now going to cost at least 56% more than it was going to cost me nine months ago because of the increase in the cost of materials. In fact, some of the things that I want to buy now, and I look at what the prices were nine months ago, and they've tripled in price. So anybody who's trying to claim that inflation is just 7.9% isn't buying anything. But the point I'm trying to make with the bond market, and I've digressed a couple of times, so I keep moving away from that with the economic data, but the economy is weakening. The bond market has got that part right. But inflation is strengthening. And nothing that the Fed did today is going to alter the trajectory of inflation. Now, we did have a lot of action in the oil markets during the week. Maybe the big drop in the price of oil help some people think that maybe inflation may be abating, but the oil market is still in a big bull market. Yes, we dropped $13 a barrel during the week, but a lot of that is noise. It's just trading. It's a very volatile market. There's a lot of leverage. I think the trend is still up and the highs are not in for the price of oil. We're going to continue to move higher despite the correction we had this week. By the way, Bitcoin had a positive week continuing its high correlation with the ARK Innovation ETF. The Grayscale Bitcoin Trust was up 7.8% on the week. And Bitcoin itself, as I'm recording this podcast, is trading back above 41,000. So Bitcoin followed risk assets higher instead of safe haven assets like gold lower. 
Avast has been a global leader in cybersecurity for more than 30 years, and it's trusted by over 435 million users. Avast empowers you with digital safety and privacy, no matter who you are, where you are, or how you connect. Enjoy the opportunities that come with being connected all on your terms. Avast's all-in-one solution, Avast One, helps you take control of your safety and privacy online through a range of features. You can learn more about Avast One at Avast.com. Those features include antivirus, an award-winning antivirus that stops viruses and malware from harming your devices. Also, data breach monitoring, enabling you to find out if your online accounts have been compromised or whether your passwords need to be protected. It also gives you firewall protection. Keep personal information secure and prevent attacks that seek to access your computers and steal your data. It also secures your personal photos, documents, and other files from being modified, deleted, or encrypted by ransomware. I've been using Avast myself for years, and it's done a great job of protecting my data. In fact, Avast prevents over 1.5 billion attacks every month, and with Avast One, you can confidently take control of your online world without worrying about viruses, phishing attacks, ransomware, hacking attempts, or other cyber crimes. To learn more about Avast One, go to Avast.com. Moving to the currency markets and the precious metals market, the dollar actually sold off pretty good on the day. In fact, the dollar was a little weaker into the Fed announcement and it continued to weaken post announcement. The reversal though came in the gold market because gold was one of the only markets that was down going into today's Fed announcement. In fact, I think at one point gold might've been down about 10 or 15 bucks and it was already down by better than $50 on Monday and Tuesday. So as stocks were rising in anticipation of this rate hike, gold prices were falling. It seems like the only market that investors perceived that rate hikes would be negative for was gold, which is so ironic because the gold market is the one market that's not going to be affected by these rate hikes because they're too little too late. In fact, the last time the Fed began a rate hiking cycle, it was December of 2015. And the day the Fed hiked rates after talking about hiking rates for a long, long time, gold actually bottomed. Gold hit its low for the cycle on the day of the rate hike. And that was about $1,050 per ounce. And then it went up from there. In fact, the price basically doubled from that point to its recent high. And I think the same thing is likely to happen with this highly anticipated rate hike. It's going to mark the cycle low in gold and we're headed higher from here. What would hurt gold would be positive real interest rates. If we really had a Paul Volcker chairing the Federal Reserve, who really was going to do whatever it takes to fight inflation, that would be bad for gold. But since that's not what's happening, since we're getting these tiny, itsy-bitsy rate hikes, that is not going to hurt the gold market. But I think these small rate hikes in aggregate are going to hurt the stock market, particularly the stocks that are in the NASDAQ. A lot of these companies that have no earnings and are just huge bubbles, they're going to be affected by even the smallest of pins letting the air out of that bubble. So it's the gold market that should be rising because it should be ignoring these rate hikes. And it's the stock market that should be concerned about the hikes and the impact it's going to have on those prices. 
yet investors have it completely backwards. And of course, the only reason that the Fed is hiking rates now is inflation. Let's be real. If we didn't have this inflation threat, there is no way the Fed would be hiking rates. In fact, if you go back and look at the Fed's forecasts for interest rates in 2022, when they were still pretending that inflation was transitory, they didn't have any rate hikes penciled in for 2022. I mean, maybe in December, there was going to be the first hike, but I think most people were talking about staying at zero up through the end of 2022 and the first rate hikes would come in 2023. I think some people were looking for 2024 before we moved off of zero. But if you look at the environment we're in now, with the economy weakening, with the markets weakening, I mean, at least up until a few days ago, they were weakening. And I expect that trend will continue once the market rolls over from this balance. But in this environment, with weakening economic data, weakening markets, and all the geopolitical uncertainty introduced by a war with Russia and the Ukraine against this backdrop, there is no way this Fed would be hiking interest rates. Look at where the yield curve is. The Fed is not going to start hiking rates when you have an inversion in the yield curve between the five and the 10-year treasuries. They're not going to start hiking with the type of economic data that we see, the type of uncertainty that's out there. This is normally when the Fed is coming to the rescue. This is when the Fed would be cutting rates to try to preempt a recession from happening, to try to stabilize the markets, to try to offset the negative impact of a war in Ukraine, right? That's what the Fed wants to do, but they can't do it because inflation is so high. And so since the only reason they're raising rates is inflation, that is bullish for gold because gold thrives on inflation. People buy gold as an inflation hedge. But just because the Fed is hiking rates because of inflation doesn't mean these rate hikes are actually going to work at putting out the inflation fire. They're not. The Fed is simply doing the minimum that it can get away with and try to save face. Because at this point, there are no more excuses for staying at zero. The Fed has to raise rates. And so it raised them by the smallest amount that it could and maintain credibility, 25 basis points. That's it. So given the reality of why rates are rising, gold should be rising and not falling. Now, we did get a reversal. The price of gold ended up about seven bucks higher on the day, about 1925. So we did recover those initial losses on the hike. And by the way, if you read a lot of the early reports, the hike was considered hawkish, right? As if a 25 basis point hike can ever be considered hawkish. But what made it hawkish was Powell's commitment, his resolve to continue hiking rates. He didn't come out and say, look, we're just doing it this one time, and now we're really not sure. Powell pretty much let the markets know that this is the first of many and more hikes are coming, which is a good segue to start talking about Powell, the official statement, and then the press conference that followed. So let me start by talking about what was in the prepared remarks, because that's what gets released right away. That came out at two o'clock Eastern time. We don't get the press conference for another half hour. So the markets get to digest this official statement that comes along with the announcement of the quarter point rate hike. And one of the most interesting aspects of what the Fed prepared 
And I haven't heard anybody comment on it, which is another reason why you want to listen to the Peter Schiff Show podcast, because I talk about a lot of things that nobody else seems to notice. And this has to do with all the language they took out regarding how they're going to start to shrink their balance sheet. Because remember, now that we have the first rate hike, according to Powell, the Fed is for the first time going to start thinking about how they're going to shrink their balance sheet, right? Because Powell said that we haven't even started that process yet, which made no sense to me because this is probably the most difficult thing that the Fed has to do. They've known they had to do this for years. You would have thought that they would have spent a little time trying to figure out how they're going to do it instead of just procrastinating it and like, oh, we're not even going to bother to think about this until, you know, some distant point in the future. I knew that was a lie because there's no way to do it. But look at what they did. They took out so much language when it comes to quantitative tightening. So here is what was in the minutes of the last meeting, which how many weeks ago was that? I forget. It wasn't that long ago. But here is what the Fed said. The Fed said, beginning in February, the committee expects to begin reducing its holdings of treasuries by at least $20 billion per month and of agency debt and agency mortgage-backed securities by at least $10 billion a month. Then it wrote, the Federal Reserve's ongoing purchases and holdings of securities will continue to foster smooth market functioning and accommodative financial conditions, thereby supporting the flow of credit to households and businesses. All of that was taken out. All of the language on the minimum that they're going to do and the fact that their policy is going to remain accommodative and supportive, all that is gone. This is what the Fed left. The committee intends to reduce its holdings of treasury securities and agency mortgage-backed securities at an upcoming meeting. That's it. So they took away a lot of the clarity with respect to how much they were going to start to actually shrink the balance sheet. We now have no clue how much they're going to shrink it. We also don't know when they're going to start because in the last meeting, they said they would start in February. Well, obviously, February came and went and they didn't start because here we are in March and they haven't started, but they took away the date. So at this point, we really have no idea when the Fed is going to start shrinking its balance sheet. Now, as far as I'm concerned, this is not hawkish. This is actually dovish because the Fed has pushed back in time the date at which it expects to begin shrinking the balance sheet. Why is nobody talking about this? But it's also interesting that they took away the language about their policies fostering a smooth market, remaining accommodative, and supporting credit to households and businesses. Are they no longer committed to doing that? Because that part would be a hawkish statement. Because on the one hand, they pushed back the date when they're going to start quantitative tightening to some unknown date. We don't know what the minimum is because they took that out. So maybe it will be less. We don't know. But they took out the language about being accommodative and being supportive. I mean, maybe they just thought that that language about maintaining an accommodative policy contradicted their commitment to fight inflation. Because how do you fight inflation with an accommodative monetary policy when that's the type of monetary policy that you use to fight recession? You need a restrictive monetary policy to fight inflation. But I thought this was a very interesting change. But the most important thing to me is that quantitative tightening is happening later than the Fed initially postured, and it may never happen. I mean, that's kind of my thought. They can raise interest rates slightly because on the margin, the first few rate hikes won't have much of an impact. 
But I think given the enormity of the federal budget deficits, I don't see how the Federal Reserve is able to shrink its balance sheet. In fact, I think the Fed is going to have to continue to increase the size of its balance sheet, even as it notches up interest rates. Now, let me go on to the press conference. And a couple of the questions that Powell got had to do with whether or not he was worried about higher rates affecting the economy or causing a recession. That seemed to be a common concern. And obviously, it's a correct concern because if Powell really is going to fight inflation as aggressively as he claims, if the Fed is going to do whatever it takes to bring inflation back down to 2%, we're going to have a recession. There's pretty much no way to get from where we are to where the Fed claims we're going without a recession. I mean, based on the type of policy tools that the Fed uses and the leverage in the current U.S. economy. But Hal reassured all the reporters and, of course, the markets and the nation, because he knows everybody is watching, that he's not worried about that at all. According to Powell, the economy is strong enough to withstand the rate hikes that the Fed sees coming. Now, of course, maybe the Fed is going to have to hike rates more because Powell admitted that. Powell later said that, look, you know, we're data dependent. Every meeting is live, meaning that we're going to hike rates every time we meet. But we're data dependent, so we're not just with blinders on. It's not autopilot. We're going to assess the data. But based on where he is right now, he expects to raise rates every time they meet for the rest of this year, which is a lot of rate hikes this year. Of course, it doesn't amount to much because each hike is just 25 basis points. But according to Powell, the market can handle those 25 basis point hikes. Well, maybe it can. Maybe it can't. I mean, the Fed's been wrong about a lot of stuff in the past. I mean, most recently, it was wrong about inflation being transitory. So maybe it's wrong about the ability of the economy to withstand these rate hikes. But of course, even Powell would have to admit, if the Fed is wrong about inflation again, and inflation does not come down as the Fed expects, and the Fed has to deliver more rate hikes that it currently believes, well, then clearly it may not believe the economy is strong enough to handle that, especially when you understand the nature of the U.S. economy. It is a credit bubble. Everything hinges on the ability of over-leveraged consumers and businesses and governments to keep on spending borrowed money. So obviously there is a breaking point there when it comes to interest rates. You live by low interest rates, you die by high interest rates. The only question is, at what point are low interest rates no longer low enough and then they become high? We're only going to find out when we get there. Now, in 2018, we got there at 2.5%. And I think the breaking point is much lower than that now because the economy is far more levered up today than it was back then. So if we broke at 2.5%, I don't think we can even get to 1.5% before collapsing this bubble. But the Fed clearly doesn't even understand that the economy is a bubble, or if it does, it sure as hell not going to admit that to anybody. Now, when it comes to inflation, though, somebody asked Powell, when does the Fed expect it to peak? And of course, maybe if Powell was honest, he would say, well, we have no idea, clearly. I mean, we didn't see all this inflation coming, so how are we supposed to know when it's going to peak? But according to Powell, but for the Ukraine situation, it would have peaked this quarter right? Q1 without Ukraine. But because of the Ukraine, he's really not sure, but he does expect it to peak before mid-year. And so he says we're going to have high inflation this year, 
He doesn't think it will be as high as last year, but it's still going to be much higher than 2%. But according to Powell, we will peak some point during the first half of the year. And so he expects in the second half of the year for inflation to be declining from the higher levels of the first half of the year. But he doesn't really know by how much. But if that is the case, it is still inconsistent with today's 25 basis point hike, because if he expects inflation to be that high for the remainder of the year, you would expect the Fed to raise rates by more than 25 basis points. The reason the Fed is not doing it is because the Fed is afraid. The Fed is more afraid of hurting the economy than inflation. Now, another question that Powell got had to do with whether or not the Fed made a mistake and waited too long to hike rates. And of course, the Fed made a mistake. It waited too long. Of course, the mistake was that it never should have cut rates in the first place. The Fed's been making mistakes for years. It's not like they just started now. But clearly, when Powell was out there saying that there was no inflation and inflation was transitory, and even before that, he said, we're going to let the economy run hot. We're not going to act until we see the whites of inflation's eyes. We're not going to be preemptive. Remember, I talked about it on this podcast that Powell was making kind of an all or nothing bet on inflation being transitory, that he didn't want to take out even the slightest insurance policy that it might not be. And it didn't make any sense that he would bet the farm on transitory unless he felt he had no choice. Because I think Powell knew at the time that if they admitted it wasn't transitory and started to fight inflation, that it would have brought about a collapsing economy sooner. So rather than deliberately pick the bubble, he just threw a Hail Mary pass on transitory and just hoped that he would never have to do it. And to me, there was no reason to make such a big gamble unless you knew you were damned either way. And so that's what I think happened. But what Powell is saying in response to this question about whether or not the Fed was wrong and waited too long to raise rates, Powell admitted that had he known then what he knows now, with the full benefit of hindsight, yes, the Fed would have acted sooner to remove the accommodation and start raising rates. But I don't even believe that admission. And first of all, Powell also prefaced it by saying that nobody knew that this was coming, that all the other economists, well, they all believed that inflation was transitory. So there's no way the Fed could have known that it wasn't. So it's only with the benefit of 2020 hindsight that they could realize that they made a mistake, but it really wasn't a mistake in real time because they didn't have the data and nobody could expect them to see into the future. And of course, that's all nonsense. This was not like you needed a crystal ball. You didn't have to be a fortune teller to realize that inflation was coming based on all the money the Fed had just printed and based on the fact that nobody was working to produce. The only thing we were producing is money. It was pretty obvious that this was going to happen. I mean, I was talking about it almost every day on my podcast. So it's not that nobody could have seen this coming. A lot of people saw it coming. It's just that the Fed closed its eyes so it didn't have to see what was obviously coming. But even if you accept that, the Fed still did not act once it realized it was wrong because it was many months ago, I forget exactly how many, that the Fed first officially and publicly admitted its mistake about transitory. And Powell said, you know, we've got to retire the word transitory. So that's when the Fed basically said, okay, we were wrong about inflation. It's not transitory. It's a much bigger problem than we thought. Okay, 
So why didn't the Fed just immediately raise interest rates the moment they recognized they got it wrong? Because once they recognized they were wrong, they also knew they were behind the curve. So why wait and get even further behind the curve by delaying the rate hike? Once the Fed admitted that they got it wrong, now it's not the benefit of hindsight. They had the data in real time, yet they chose to continue to stay at zero. They chose to continue quantitative easing. They could have just abruptly stopped it. They didn't have to keep doing it. So they continued to pursue the same reckless monetary policy when they said there was no inflation or it was transitory once they recognized that there was a big inflation problem and it wasn't transitory. Now you can say, well, you know, they didn't want to go quickly. They wanted to give the markets time to brace for it. They wanted the markets to swallow the bitter tasting medicine with a spoonful of sugar. And so they just had a delay. But, you know, the Fed didn't have that luxury. They made a big mistake, a calculated error. They did that Hail Mary and it fell incomplete. They had to do something differently. They had to recognize, oh, my God, we let this inflation genie out of the bottle. We now need to pull out all the stops. We need to do whatever we can. We don't care if it means the stock market's going to get hit. We just got to do this. I mean, we should have done it earlier. We got a long way to catch up. We're way behind the curve. The markets are going to tank. It doesn't matter. We're just going to act. No, Powell didn't do that, which is why I don't believe him when he says he will do whatever it takes, that the Fed is going to use its tools because somebody asked him about unemployment and you know what he would do if unemployment started to pick up and the inflation was still there. But now unemployment was picking up because he was talking about how strong the labor market was and that was providing cover for the Fed to hike rates. Well, what if the labor market loses its strength? What if people start losing jobs? What are you going to do? And what Powell said, and he didn't come out and say it sharply, but he obviously said it. Maybe not everybody understood it, but he basically admitted that it may not matter because he said that in order to preserve the health of the labor markets over the long term, price stability is number one. So even though the Fed has a dual mandate of both maximum employment and price stability, if we don't have price stability, we can't have maximum employment. That price stability is actually more important. That's what he said. And it's true. And so what he said is that if we come to a point where unemployment is rising, but we still have an inflation problem, the Fed is going to ignore the rise in unemployment and keep fighting inflation, even if it makes the unemployment situation worse, because the Fed is concerned about the long term. And it's going to do what's right for the long term health of the economy, even if it means inflicting some harm in the short run. But there again, I don't believe Powell. I don't care what Powell says. I'm just looking at what Powell does. Powell keeps talking about how the Fed is going to use its tools. No matter what, the Fed is committed to bringing inflation back down to 2%. If that really were true, it would have already used those tools. It would have brought them out of the tool chest a long time ago. The reason that those tools remained in the chest until today, and even the tool that we used was inadequate for the job. I mean, it has the tool of hiking rates, but it hiked rates by the bare minimum of 25 basis points. The reason it didn't do 50. The reason it didn't do 100, I mean, why can't it do 100? Had no problem cutting rates 
In fact, it had, I think, was it 150 basis point rate cut during COVID? I mean, it's not like the Fed can't move in bigger increments. It can if it wants to. It just doesn't want to, even though it's appropriate. So it doesn't matter. Powell can talk all he wants about how committed the Fed is to fighting inflation, no matter what happens in the labor market, no matter what happens in the stock market. But I don't believe it. And in fact, the markets probably don't believe it either, because if stock market investors believe that Powell was going to do whatever it takes, regardless of the impact on the economy, regardless of the impact on the markets, the markets would still be tanking. So the markets must still believe there's a Powell put. They just don't know where the strike price is. And I agree. There is a Powell put and there is a strike price, but it is lower than maybe had been previously applied to other Fed chairmen who were operating in an environment where you didn't have official inflation running at a 40-year high. Powell also got a pretty good question about the Fed's ability to fight inflation with negative interest rates, which of course is what I've been saying. This particular journalist pointed out that even after the rate hikes, even after all the rate hikes that are being anticipated, and with the Fed's own inflation forecasts, which are too rosy, but at no point does the interest rate actually get above the inflation rate. So during the entire battle with inflation, interest rates stay negative the whole time. And so the question is, how do you fight inflation with negative real interest rates? Now, of course, there is no answer for that. And that's why Powell basically dodged the question. He eventually got around to acknowledging that the guy asked about negative rates, but he never really explained how the Fed could do this. Because if you could do it, I mean, why didn't Paul Volcker do it? I mean, why did Paul Volcker feel like rates had to go up to 20% when inflation was 13.5%? I mean, if he could have fought inflation with negative real rates, why didn't he do it? Was he just some kind of idiot who didn't understand this? And Powell is a genius that realizes that he's a much better inflation fighter than Powell. He's so much better that he could fight inflation with negative rates. He doesn't need positive real rates like Volcker did. There is no way. The reporter was right. It's just that there's no follow-ups. There is no way that you're going to fight inflation. There is no historical precedent for this happening. And of course, it's not just rising interest rates that we need. We need a contraction in the money supply. And people are always talking about, well, you need higher interest rates to slow the economy, as if slowing the economy is the key to reining in inflation. It's not. The reason we need higher interest rates is to change the savings and spending patterns of consumers. Consumers have to be incentivized to stop spending money and to start saving money. Now, if that means the economy is going to slow, well, when you have an economy that's 70% consumption, sure, it's going to slow. But what's also going to happen is you're going to have a pickup in investment because if consumers stop spending and start saving, well, then you're going to have a bigger pool of savings for real businesses to borrow and make important capital investments that are right now not being made. So what would happen as a result of higher interest rates where consumers respond by saving more and spending less, you get less consumption now, demand goes down, but you get more production. So you increase the industrial capacity and the productive capacity of the economy, which ultimately raises the level of output and that helps bring prices down too, because now we start spending less and producing more. That is the economic environment that the Fed needs to create 
by raising interest rates. But are you going to create that type of environment by raising interest rates from zero to 25 basis points? Absolutely not. Nobody who is not saving money now is going to be enticed into saving because rates are now 25 basis points. In fact, most people won't even notice the difference. It's not like your bank is going to start jacking up the yield on your deposits. You're not even going to notice it. Nobody is going to be encouraged to save money based on a quarter of 1%. In fact, even when the Fed gets up to 1%, that's still not going to be enough, especially in a world where inflation is well above that. I mean, even if inflation came down from the 7.9% level where it is now, who's going to be incentivized to save to get 1% or 2%? You're still losing money. You have negative real interest rates. Nobody is dumb enough to save money when interest rates are negative. If the value of your savings is going down, why save? Just buy stuff today because the price is going to be higher in the future. What you have to do is create a situation where prices are lower in the future because if you save your money, you're going to get paid interest on your savings. And the money you save plus the interest you earned will enable you to buy more stuff in the future than if you bought stuff right now. But these tiny interest rate increases aren't going to change that. If you're dumb enough to save your money, you're going to buy less in the future than if you just bought stuff right now because the interest is too low to make a difference. So nobody is going to start saving because of these rate hikes. And what about the propensity to spend or borrow? Nobody is going to decide not to borrow money just because the cost of borrowing goes up by 25 basis points because you're still getting paid to borrow. Whenever you have negative real interest rates, you are getting paid to borrow. Now, maybe you're getting paid less to borrow, but not really, because in case you haven't paid attention, the inflation rate has gone up by more than 25 basis points since the Fed first started talking about hiking rates by 25 basis points this March. So in other words, between the time the Fed started talking about the first hike and the time they hiked, inflation increased by more than the hike, which means that real interest rates have actually gone down, even though nominal interest rates have gone up, which means you're getting paid even more money to borrow now after the hike than you were when they first started talking about the hikes. So how is that going to change the borrowing and saving patterns of society? It's not. You are continuing to pursue highly accommodative inflationary policies. And so why should inflation come down? It won't. Inflation is going to keep going up. At least some of the reporters that are asking these questions recognize that, but they kind of let Powell off the hook because he dodges the questions, doesn't really answer them, and then there's no follow-up. And there were several questions about the timing of the rate hikes and whether or not the Fed is on autopilot, if the Fed is going to keep on hiking rates. And Powell basically admitted that the Fed doesn't really know, that as of now, the Fed plans on these quarter point hikes at all these live meetings, but that the Fed is going to adjust its policy based on what's happening with inflation. And so if inflation is worse than they think, if inflation doesn't behave and doesn't come down the way the Fed now believes, that they may have to adjust their policy. They may have to increase the number of hikes or maybe increase the percentage of each hike. So maybe instead of 25 basis points, maybe we get 50. The Fed basically said, 
that the meetings are live and they're data dependent for better or for worse. Now, personally, I don't believe they're data dependent for worse because I don't think Powell has the nerve or the political cojones to actually do what Paul Volcker did and actually respond to a much worse inflation than he thought by raising rates even more than the Fed is now projecting because he's already proven that he's not willing to do that because inflation is already much higher than the Fed thought. And the Fed hasn't really done anything differently about it other than begin the rate hiking cycle a little bit sooner, but it's done nothing to increase the trajectory of those hikes. And in fact, as I said earlier, it's just pushed back when it's going to start quantitative tightening. So nothing that the Fed has done suggests that Powell is actually going to follow through with what he's saying. But I think he's saying it for a reason. I think Powell recognizes that inflation is a big threat. And since the Fed basically has no stick, all Powell can do is talk tough. So Powell has to act as if he's going to use these tools that, yes, if inflation ends up being worse than I thought, then we're going to hike rates more than I thought. I think the reality is, yes, the Fed is data dependent, but it's the other way. What the Fed is really watching is the economy, is employment, is the stock market. And if the stock market breaks, if the economy breaks, that's what's going to cause the Fed to adjust its policy. And it's going to adjust its policy by pivoting back to an even easier stance. I don't think the Fed is going to be able to become more aggressive in fighting inflation given its other commitment to raise rates carefully, to take care and try not to hurt the economy, not to hurt the markets. That's what I believe. That's the course I think Powell is actually charting. Even if he wants to pretend that he's going to take a different path, he can't have his cake and eat it too. He can't tell everybody that he's got the economy's back. He's going to support the market. He's going to support the economy. But don't worry, he's going to do whatever it takes to get rid of inflation because those two commitments are mutually exclusive. The Fed can only keep its promise on one, and I think it's going to be on the economy. But the fact that it keeps that promise means that ultimately the economy is going to be much worse because it's going to in unleash an inflationary nightmare into the economy. And that ultimately, if the Fed really wanted to do what was in the long-term interest of the economy, it would be fighting inflation. It would have already done it. It would have been far more aggressive. In fact, if the Fed cared at all about the long-term health of the economy, it wouldn't have done anything that it's done since Greenspan. We wouldn't have had any of the bailouts. We wouldn't have any of the stimulus because none of that was good for the long-term health of the economy. In fact, we're experiencing all the negative consequences of all that stuff right now. And what we're experiencing now is just a small taste of what's to come. This is a tip of a huge iceberg.